Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. And now I can also accept Zelle and Venmo. Just use my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. In God's speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 252 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 12, Moonwalk 2, Part 3, Rock and Roll at Halo Crater. Continuing from the previous episode on Moonwalk 2, Conrad and Bean had visited the Allsep, Head Crater, Bench Crater, and Sharp Crater. Now they continued their circular traverse to Halo Crater, which was due east, directly into the rising sun. Okay, Pete, we'll give you a radar vector on this one. If you'll go over uh, just directly east of Bench Crater, and you can continue on east until you're just about uh, directly opposite the limb, and then a couple more steps ought to take you right to Halo Crater. Sounds like a pretty good vector. That also says that we're running right into the sun. Does that agree with you? That's affirmative. You'll be running right into the sun, and uh, directly at your 9 o'clock position, you'll see the lamb in a couple more steps, and you'll be right there. The problem with running into the sun was it was so bright that Conrad and Bean could not see surface features until they were right on top of them. They were concerned that by the time they could clearly see a crater, they would not be able to keep from falling into it, especially since it took 10 to 15 feet to stop. They could climb out of a small crater, but any astronaut who fell into one of the large craters would have more than enough time to think about the mistake they made. So, to avoid heading directly into the sun, Conrad and Bean ran an elongated zigzag pattern like sailboats tacking as they head into the wind. Pete thought their method of running felt like giraffes. He asked Bean if he ever saw the pictures of giraffes running in slow motion. Bean laughed and immediately understood what Conrad was talking about. He watched Pete's feet as he ran along beside him, 
Each time his boots hit the surface, they sprayed a small shower of dust, sailing out on perfect trajectories. You know what I feel like now? Yeah. You ever see those pictures of giraffes running in slow motion? <laughs> exactly what I feel like. Hey, uh, would you draft give us uh, some comment on your boot penetration as you move across there, what you're doing now, and what you had there back there at Sharp Crater? Oh, it's much firmer here. We don't sink in anywhere near as much. Now, crossing some of my own tracks. Yeah. The toes sink in a bit, Pete, as you push off. You land flat-footed so your heels don't sink in, but as you push off with your toes, they sink in down about three inches. Your heels are only sunk in... Uh, Perhaps an eighth of an inch. Roger, you thank you, Al. Kick off on your toe. Every time he lands, he sends uh, little uh, particles spraying out ahead of him and beside him and everywhere else. And they go out the distance they uh, maybe two feet to three feet around him. Okay, we're back at Bench Crater. As they ran by the southern rim of Bench Crater, they were beginning to feel the strain of their adventure. The entire run to Surveyor Crater was slightly uphill, and they could feel it. Their mouths were as dry as the desert from breathing pure oxygen. Conrad radioed, Tell you one thing I'd go for is a good drink of ice water. The one on the south side of Bench Crater, Houston. Okay, now if you'll just go uh, directly to the east of the center of Bench Crater and then continue directly east right into the sun. And then at 9 o'clock, you'll see the lamb in a couple more steps and you'll be there. Okay. Got the decided feeling. I've got to sleep tonight. Pete, the crater you're looking for, Halo Crater, is uh, about the same size a sharp crater and should resemble it. I think I have it in sight, but I'm not sure. It's a couple of months. Hey, what I'm going to do, Houston, I'm going to take an EMU break. You doing, Al? Okay. Pete, the dimension on Halo Crater is about 20 feet, so that would make it uh, half of what you saw at Sharp. To make matters more difficult for Bean, the tool carrier was getting heavy with rocks. He had to hold it up to his chest while he ran to keep the rocks from bouncing out. This meant he was constantly fighting the arms of the suit. Before the mission, he had been so conscientious about exercise, every day he would run a couple of miles on the hard beach at the Cape, pounding his legs into shape. And it turned out, that most of the work was in the arms, and especially the hands. He told Capcom Ed Gibson to pass along a message to Fred Hayes, the lunar module pilot for Apollo 13. The message was to do hand exercises. Then, of course, Conrad said to tell Jim Lovell 
to practice digging. Hey, Ed, you might tell Fred Hayes you ought to quit working on running and start working on holding things in his hands. My legs don't get a bit tired, but your hands get tired carrying these uh, tools, particularly the hand tool carrier. Roger, Al, sure will. I'm sure he's listening. Yeah, you listen. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's funny. It, uh, you wouldn't think it that way. Well, Jim Lovell, the practice digging. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Houston, the flight surgeon saw Conrad's and Bean's heart rate soar to 160 beats per minute. Ed Gibson, Capcom, passed on a message from the surgeon to the lunar surface, in code. The message was, Pete and Al, we'd like an EMU check. EMU stood for Extravehicular Mobility Unit. In other words, the space suit and backpack. Apparently, this was just a request for each man to read out his oxygen supply and report any anomalies in suit pressure or the like. But in reality, it let Gibson tell the men to cool it for a couple of minutes without letting the whole world know about it. Conrad and Bean got the message, and they read out their oxygen quantity and the rest of it. But they couldn't bring themselves to stand around and do nothing. An interesting rock caught their eye, and they set about collecting it. And then Pete decided to take a picture of Al with the hand tool carrier looking like a moon tourist. Obviously, this occurred before they knew about their camera problem. Pete, now, we have an EMU check, and uh, one way to locate it also is that it should be right on the rim of Surveyor Crater, and you ought to see Surveyor uh, off directly uh, to the northeast. Okay, I, I, I know where we are. And the EMU check line reads about 55% O2 Houston. Mine reads 5502 also Houston. Copy 55 both. Beautiful. Round glass ball. They got to have now. Quarter of an inch. They have a sample bag. Coming, coming. Look at that. Two just a second. First time I've worked up a heart rate, I think. Okay. This is sample bag 11D. I didn't take a picture, I just wanted to. Okay. Watch that crater behind you, don't step back. It's the glass bead. I know I was thinking of this. We got a total now of about five pounds of rock. Okay. I'd hate to have us get back to them and then have to fill it up around here again. Now, it's working over that survey crater. Okay. I think it's probably get the bottom of that, baby. Can take a rest here? Yeah. Then they were on the run again. Everyone in Mission Control could hear them huffing and puffing. The two men ran onward in their long, gliding, slow-motion giraffe strides under the black dome of the lunar sky. Bean looked up as he ran above the solar glare and found a glittering crescent set in the velvet exactly where it had been the day before. To Bean, the earth appeared like a radiant blue and white gemstone, suspended in the blackness overhead. Just as the moon always keeps the same face toward the earth, 
so the earth never moves in the lunar sky. And as we see the moon change from full to new and back to full, the earth does the reverse, waxing and waning in the lunar sky like a blue and white eye opening and closing. Bean looked down at his feet again, watching out for potholes and rocks, then leaned his head back for another glance. For just a moment, he silenced the voice in his head that always called him back to work, to the rule of the clock, and he talked to himself. He said, This is the moon, that is earth, and I am really here. Then, suddenly, Bean felt his ears pop. Was his suit losing pressure? Astronauts are people who have learned to put fear out of their minds in order to accomplish dangerous tasks. Bean could keep it out of his mind until something unexpected happened. Bean's heart was pounding. He stopped and checked the gauge on his wrist. No change. It must have been some kind of weird transient. Only after the flight would the engineers decide that as Bean ran in the light gravity, his body had bounced against the oxygen outflow port within his suit, closing it momentarily and causing a slight increase in suit pressure. But just now, that taste of fear was enough to put Bean's thoughts right back on the traverse. After that, he stopped looking up for a while. As the astronauts approached the area where Halo Crater was supposed to be, they were not sure that they had found it. There are a couple of, a couple of three dimple craters uh, in the south side of it. Stand by, Pete. Okay, stand by, Pete. You can collect your rock while we wait, Pete. Yeah, I, well, look, I think this is Halo Crater right here. All right, let's see. Let's there. go get some rocks from it and everything. We're seeing it, right? We're, we're, we actually got the soil sample from part of it. Okay. But this is a 20 feet diameter. Is it right on the rim of the surveyor crater? Is it? That's affirmative, and uh, from your comments on the three dimples, we show that you're there. Okay, what do you want in it? We'd like to get uh, the pan and the double core tube. I can't believe we're at the right place. I'm not sure that we're at the right place either. Let me look at the top of this hill here. This is surveyor crater. Let me look at the chart. There's a nice rock right there. There's surveyor. Let me look at the map. Not even hardly a crater worth looking at where we are. Okay, Pete, it's uh, your call there. You're the local experts. If uh, you see a better location for that double uh, port tube, go ahead. Well, I'm trying to find the right uh, right uh, crater, Houston. Uh, hey, Pete, I think it's that area right over there. there. That's the, uh, Halo is this first one right here, the little one. And then all those others are mixed over, according to the chart. Okay, so we can just go over there. And, and, Which uh, one's Halo? This one right here? This one? It's right, see where I'm pointing? No. Because I see it, it's that one right over there. Okay. Let's go. Okay. Find the double core tube. All right. And you want what, Houston, a partial pan? That's affirmative. Oh, look at all the glass at the bottom of that, baby. Got a lot of that, though. Huh? Got a lot of glass. Now there? Yeah. I think that's Halo right there. Which one? Right there. Right. We're looking at? Right over? That, that one, that one right there. 
Too big. Too big, huh? Let's take this one right here. All right, that's good. At this point, the astronauts discovered they were having problems with their Hasselblad cameras. Pete now, could we have a readout on the cameras at this point? By this time, the Hasselblad camera mounted on Bean's chest was so covered with the tenacious black moon dust that he could barely read the settings. Additionally, the nut holding Bean's camera mounting bracket came off somewhere, and Conrad's mounting bracket was loose too. The result caused trigger play and intermittency in the shutter, the counter, and the film advance actions. So both astronauts missed some pictures that they thought they had taken. Why don't I just trade you cameras? That's probably the smart way. All right. Hey, would you lift mine off with you? Sure will. I can't pull those things right. And the vacuum weld a little bit or something, I think. Now you hold that one. But that's about to come apart. I'll be darned if it is. I'll fix the hold the handle there. Back. Why did I? It did come apart. It did come apart. Son of a gun. I tell you what happened, Houston. The uh, nut that holds the handle of the camera on broke off, and so the handle's free, but that's okay. We'll yeah. just carry it around. Let me ask you a question. Uh, Roger, I got you. We understand that the nut broke, but you, the camera's still usable, right? And you're not sleeping too, Pete. Stay, stay there. Let me tighten it up for you. If they weren't losing one six Gs, yeah, we knew, we knew that. We should have watched them more carefully, honey. I'm gonna have to help me get this camera off. I'm gonna get it off. Well, you gotta take the surveyor picture, so why don't I give you the camera? Okay, that's good enough. He's still got uh, 50 pictures or so. Now watch it. Make sure it takes a picture each time it turns. Okay. And just watch it. The camera. I'll tell you what. Well, here, I'll hold it. You take this one off. Okay, you got that camera. Got that right there. All right, drop that one in here. Well, why don't you well, well, carry it? That's what I'd do. Carry it or something. But, but I got too much other stuff. 
I mean, Jerry, part of it. So. Okay, let me go pull out the court tube. No, I'll tell you what, we can always take the magazine off this and put it on the other one. That's what we can do, I guess. Yeah. We can just drop it in here. Okay. Very good. Well done. Have you gotten the uh, panorama? No, I'm going to get uh, Al to do that right now. He's using my camera. His camera's had it. Uh, with the handle off it and everything, yeah, by the time we got done handling it, we got dirt all over the lens. We run out of film. Uh, we have to have uh, another magazine with us, uh, or we could change that. We'll just take that off. Now well, we can do that or well, don't want it, but if we have to, I guess we can. Okay, let me start this pan. 74. 74 it is. Once they discovered Bean's camera could not be remounted on the bracket, they decided to put it in the bag, and they mounted Conrad's camera on Bean. Then they moved on to the core sample at Halo Crater, but they had a little problem with the hammer they were using to drive in the sample tubes. They used a good hammer when you, when you hit on the side of it like you have to do to get it within his suit. It knocks little chips of metal off the side of the hammer. I don't think that's too good. Uh, Roger, I'll, uh, is it damaging the hammer or the core tube? I'm afraid some of the fragments will damage the suit. Not damage it itself. You know, it's just breaking. Hey, I'm better left-handed than right. There goes another fragment. You do that, Pete? Yeah, I'm not. Even hit with the front end, and some of them pop off. They're flying all over the place. Okay, he's up to the uh, bottom of the uh, hand grip portion of the upper tube. He's really driving that baby. Look at that hand. Look at that. Look at that Looks like it's got a coating over the uh, hammer, Pete, and I'm knocking the coating. Could it be in a steel or aluminum hammer? Some sort of coated arrangement. That's affirmative, Al. There is a coating on that hammer, and that's probably what you're knocking off. And uh, also, we want to be sure to get uh, the site there documented. And your 58 rev 27 update. We'll document it for you. Coming up. We almost got you. Almost. Solid there, didn't it? No, it's just getting down there, Pete. Hey, that baby is in the ground. We've got a double now. The question is, can we pull it out? Finally, Pete and Al got some good news. Their EVA had been extended by 30 minutes, making it a total of four hours. Okay, Pete, uh, you're two hours and seven minutes into the EVA. And we show you leaving Halo uh, at around 2.15, and now that's for a four-hour EVA. We've extended you 30 minutes for a total uh, EVA of four hours. We'd like, uh, before you go on, to have a good EMU check and uh, sit down and regroup and figure out a plan of attack on the surveyor. While heading towards Surveyor Crater, Pete found a loaf-shaped rock that he had to have, but it was too big for his tongs to handle. Conrad and Bean quickly improvised a method to retrieve the rock that is now known as the Rock and Roll on the Ocean of Storms. Yeah, wait, wait, one. wait, Pete. I got an idea. But this foot might be good for 13. Pete, let me reach back here and grab this strap. Okay, now go. Okay, let me roll a little bit over. Attaboy. Back up. 
And I tell you, he had a strap like that. They could just hold the other guy while he leaned over and picked up a rock. In case you didn't catch all of that, Al grabbed a strap on the surveyor parts bag that Pete was wearing on the back of his suit, and he used it to help Pete get low enough to grab the rock with his hand. Using this method, they avoided the juggling act that had so often been part of picking up rocks with the scoop. Although the technique seems to have worked fairly well, no one else ever used it, probably because they had bigger tongs and, if necessary, could kneel or at least lean on rocks or tools while they grabbed rocks off the surface. In 2002, Al Bean did a painting. He called it Rock and Roll on the Ocean of Storms. Here is Al Bean explaining his painting in his own words. Rock and roll on the ocean of storms. Now, Pete Conrad and I were two hours and five minutes into our second moonwalk and were approaching the south rim of Surveyor Crater when Houston asked us to take a short rest and to check our suits and backpacks. As we rested, Pete took an interest in a loaf-shaped rock and he wanted to pick it up, but he realized that it was simply too big for his tongs. Kneeling down was the next option, but our space suits would make it difficult and we would get our suits even dirtier. As Pete stood looking longingly at the aforementioned rock, I looked longingly at the long strap on the bag attached to Pete's backpack. The bag would be used to carry the surveyor TV camera and other assorted parts back to the lunar module for our return home. I said, Pete, let me reach back here and grab this strap. Okay now, now go. I lowered and Pete reached. He called out, let me roll, let me a little bit over here. Attaboy, back up. In just a few brief seconds we demonstrated the first rock and roll anywhere other than planet Earth. It was a special moment in lunar history, but was it a moment in music history? You can be the judge. The NASA sample number of this special rock is 12051. It's mainly olivine basalt. The weight is 1,660 grams, and it measures 16 by 11 by 7 centimeters. Since Pete, Dick, and I brought it back from the ocean of storms, it resides in the Lunar Sample Laboratory facilities Houston, Texas, USA. To give this painting a special authenticity, the painted moon rock Pete is reaching to pick up contains a real moon rock. It is a piece of the lunar meteorite Loon Lab 05. Salutations from the Sooner State. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 252 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 12, Moonwalk 2, Part 3, Rock and Roll at Halo Crater. 
Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thank you for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. In case you haven't noticed, I have added more episodes to the Archive podcast. We have now reached number 60, so 1 through 60 are available on iTunes, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. Just look for the Space Rocket History Archive. Today, we salute the commercial-level donors. There are two so far this year. Commercial donors contribute $90 or more during the calendar year. Thank you for your continued support, commercial donors. Okay, I had several afterthoughts about this week's episode. Of course, I want to credit my sources, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Apollo 12 Lunar Surface Journal, and Apollo, an eyewitness account by Alan Bean. Did you know about the sudden O2 problem Bean had with his suit? I had not heard that before researching this mission, or at least I forgot about it if I had. Just as Bean had started to relax and enjoy where he was, and the opportunity that he had been given. Suddenly, the problem occurs, and a problem like that will get your attention very quickly. It reminded him that everything needed to work properly for him to survive on the moon. Moving on. You know, it must be a whole lot easier to find these craters, especially the small ones, looking from above instead of from the surface, because Conrad and Bean really struggled finding the small ones from their surface view. Sharp and Halo were very hard to find, but there was not much doubt about the larger craters, so I'm thinking it's a point-of-view type thing. This week, I posted the Traverse map on Twitter, Facebook, and the website, Uh, You should probably check that out, and it will make these episodes make a lot more sense if you can see what I'm describing on this moonwalk as they go around in a circular motion that will end up back at the lunar module. I also posted Bean's painting, Rock and Roll on the Ocean of Storms. Hope you check that out at the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. I was pleased to receive three new donations, and two increases in support for the podcast over the past week. David B. increased his pledge on Patreon to above the Orion level. Mark U. from South Dakota donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. Matthew F. from Tennessee donated at the Mercury level. Matthew T. donated at the Vostok level. And Andrew B. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level with rocket emoji. Our Patreon donors are at 169, with a goal of reaching 218 by the end of the year. And our overall donors for 2018 have reached 239, with a goal of reaching 418. I wanted to let you know that April has historically been the lowest month for donations. And this April is no exception. So if you were considering a donation or some form of support for the podcast, April is a very good month to do that in. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. To support the podcast, go to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. 
All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have already donated in 2018, I certainly appreciate it and I have an item to give away this week. It is the official Space Rocket History Logo Vinyl Refrigerator Magnet. To select the winner, Mrs. SRH gave every 2018 donor a number. She put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for William Andrews. William Andrews, if you would email me, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com and tell me your address, and I will mail this out to you. Okay, that's all I have for this week. As I said before, we will have an encore episode next week, and then on to Surveyor Crater. So long for now.